Hello and welcome to the agroinnovations.com podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. From appropriate technology to fair trade, globalization, and organics, I'm your host, Frank Aragona. We are talking about bees today, and as many of you know, bees are in somewhat of a crisis, and we are going to deal with that crisis, at least find out a little bit more about it today on the agroinnovations.com podcast. We are with um, Marianne Frazier who is the senior, associate, the senior Extension Associate for Beekeeping at Pennsylvania State University and an expert in colony collapse disorder in bees. Um, Marianne, maybe the best way to approach this subject is chronologically. Can you tell us where the first observations of CCD took place, by whom, and what it was they were observing? Sure, sure. Um, in, in late 2006, one of our beekeepers here in Pennsylvania, Dave Hackenberg, who is a migratory commercial beekeeper and was overwintering his bees in Florida, um, called us uh, very alarmed due to the fact that he had taken his bees to Florida and made up a series of, of splits, which are divisions, and that's the way beekeepers uh, multiply their colonies. And those divisions, which typically will, you know, grow over time and, and do well and become full-strength colonies, um, had pretty much all collapsed. They had all, essentially, the adult bee population in those hives had, had disappeared. And he immediately contacted us and then the Department of Agriculture here and as well as in Florida. And he brought some of these um, hives, these nucleus hives, to us. And um, very quickly, the folks here at Penn State um, who worked on pathogens took some samples and looked at these bees for, for pathogen problems. We, uh, myself and a team here who are very interested in, in pesticide exposure, took some samples. But unfortunately, at the time, we were not able to easily, we were not set up to look for pesticides, but we were interested in doing that. But uh, long story short, uh, Dave, you know, we, we, he brought these hives up. We started to look at what was going on. He um, started to share this information with other beekeepers, and we pretty quickly found other beekeepers who were having a similar kind of problem, and some, in fact, who had had problems previously and had just not mentioned that they had had their hives die, either because they thought that they had done something wrong or it was just their own situation, uh, didn't think that, that, that other people might be possibly having the same scenario. Um, so that was in two thousand early in, in, in two thousand or excuse me, late in two thousand and six, early in two thousand and seven. Um, as two thousand and seven progressed, more and more beekeepers had this phenomenon, particularly commercial migratory beekeepers had this phenomenon phenomenon occur. We very quickly assembled a team, this colony collapse disorder working team that consisted of a number of researchers from the USDA, from departments of agriculture, and from universities to work on what was going on here. Um, that that working group uh, kind of divided themselves up into the things that we thought were most critical. And in part, those were identified by interviewing a lot of these beekeepers and figuring out what was not consistent in their stories about what was going on. Like, for instance, did they have the same queens from the same same source, or did they have the same kind of feed in, on their colonies, or were they treating their mites in the same way? So all of these things kind of fell out as not being consistent in these hives that were suffering from this thing called colony collapse disorder. 
And um, that from that, we, we thought of pathogens, possibly new pathogens, um, a disease that had somehow possibly changed to become more virulent, um, pesticides, uh, the presence of varroa mites, tracheomites, those kinds of things. And so the teams, the different teams working on different aspects of this quickly um, divided up the samples that were collected from the CCD and non-CCD control colonies, and we spent the next year, nine months essentially, analyzing that data and trying to figure out, did these colonies have anything um, consistently going wrong? And the one, um, the two things that have come out of this, the two most important pieces of information, I think, are that um, there is a new disease, a new virus that has been introduced into our bee population has probably been here as early as 2002, but it is relatively new, and we do think that it's pretty consistently present with these CCD colonies, and that's the Israeli acute paralysis virus. And the other thing that has come out is the pretty heavy load of pesticides that these colonies are um, experiencing. There's um, quite a, a diverse number as well as quantity of pesticides that are incorporated into the pollen of the bees as well as into the wax that the bee, the, the combs that the bees live in. And so this pesticide issue has us pretty concerned. And the third thing I would say is that there, this disease that we have had here for a long time, which is a protozoan that infests the digestive tract of the bees called um, apis, uh, apis uh, nosema apis, is we found actually uh, there's a different form of it, uh, Nosema serrani, which is um, in some parts of the world being blamed for um, a, uh, the collapse of, of colonies in other parts of the world. So that, those are the three things that have come out. And this Nosema serrani seems to have replaced our Nosema apis. Has, has this colony collapse disorder been observed in wild colonies of bees as well? I can honestly say, you know, in many parts of the world, because of varroa, many parts of the United States, because of varroa mites, we don't have a lot of wild honeybee populations anymore. We don't. We have populations that may that that, that we may have bees that that enter the the wild and establish themselves for a season or two, but then they typically die out because of the infestations of varroa mites building up. So it has. I can, in answer to your question, no, but it hasn't been observed in the wild population. But there isn't much of a wild population. And I don't think anybody's really looked at the wild population. It's a pretty hard thing to do to look at the wild population of bees and see if this is occurring. I mean, that they, the wild bees are in trees and in people's houses when they do exist, and there just are so few of them that, no, I, I, I can't say that we have seen it, but I don't think that no, anybody has looked because it's pretty hard to, to look, and there are so few of them. On what continents has this uh, colony collapse disorder been observed? Well, the decline of honeybees has occurred actually um, worldwide. We've seen many other countries report declines in honeybees. Whether or not it's truly due to this thing called colony collapse disorder, which is a pretty unique set of uh, criteria, is another question. And that's one of the things we're trying to understand by trying to communicate with other people in other parts of the world. It does look like there's mixed reasons why bees are are dying, and this colony collapse disorder is kind of the newest manifestation of poor honeybee health. 
at least in the United States. Will you? I'm sure there's some beekeepers that are listening to this right now, and possibly, quite possibly, on other continents, and they may see a decline in their honeybees. Um, what are the classic criteria of colony collapse disorder so that any beekeeper can go out there and look at their bees and say, this looks like a pretty classic case of this? Right. And the, the symptoms are that the bees are relatively healthy and strong. And in a very short period of time, the adult bee population disappears from the colony. It leaves the colony. And what it leaves behind is a lot of brood, meaning the young bees, honey and pollen. And that's how we know that not too long ago it was a strong colony is because it wouldn't be this level of resources and brood if um, there had not been um, an adult bee population to support that. The other thing that happens is that the bees are, the colonies are not quickly reinfested by robber bees or by um, hive beetles or by wax moss, which is typical. Whenever you have uh, an apiary with lots of honeybees colonies and, and some of them um, are weak or die, other honeybees are very, quickly, very quick to rob those resources from those hives. Other pests like hive beetles and wax moths enter and um, and uh, take advantage of those resources, and uh, we didn't, we don't see that with these, with this, uh, and we see it on a very, very, very large scale. You know, thousands of colonies. A, a beekeeper may have three thousand colonies, and we've seen many beekeepers have half or a third of their colonies um, die in this way. And in terms of the different theories that have been presented regarding this. I think maybe there's a lot of disinformation out there for a lot of people. I mean, I've heard uh, genetically modified crops may be a factor. Now, obviously, you've talked about some of the different theories that were that were presented uh, early on in this, but uh, could could you talk a little bit more about that? And, and cell sure. phone yeah, towers. There's... Cell phone towers were another thing that was right. <laughs> right. There have been a lot of suggestions, a lot of ideas. And um, it's 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 hard, first of all, to investigate every single um, hypothesis or every single idea. So we we try very hard to assess whether or not it's reasonable, or what is the possibility that one of these things is likely to be responsible. For instance, the cell phones. Um, a lot of a lot of these hives are belonging to large commercial operations in the Midwest. And there's very little cell phone, you know, in many of these places, they're very remote. And there's very little cell phone coverage in some of these areas where we've seen the most devastating collapses. Um, the the GMO uh, modified crops, we have worked hard with uh, Galen Dively from the University of Maryland, who's done a lot of work with GMOs. And he... Um, for one thing, the, the, the genetically modified organisms are, are incorporate the BT Bacillus thuringiensis, which is a bacterium that's specific to Lepidopteran moths and butterflies. And um, we don't, the Hymenoptera are not susceptible to those that particular bacterium, that particular toxin. So um, that, coupled with some other research that's been done, leads us to believe that that's unlikely the way that. Um, that, you know, a possible explanation for why um, the honeybees are declining. Uh, the things that have kind of rose to the surface are that this does look like a combination of factors, 
possibly mites, which are a big problem. We know that um, the presence of um, pesticides, the presence of this Israeli acute paralysis virus, the stress that bees are under when we migratory beekeepers move them around the country. And it's likely that poor nutrition is playing a role as well. We have, you know, more and more development, fewer and fewer nectar and pollen sources for these bees to to work. Um, When we take them to certain crops, um, we can't uh, the, the nutrition on some crops is not what it should be for honeybees. Like blueberries, for instance, don't have uh, the, the the quality of pollen that we'd like to see. Honeybees are, are generalist pollinators. They do best on diverse sources of pollen. So when you take them to one large monoculture of blueberries or apples or almonds, for instance, they they don't they don't do well. It's poor nutrition. And so when you're poorly nourished, nourished and you're um, your immune system maybe isn't what it should be when you're exposed to something like a, a virus. You may be more likely to be susceptible to it. Yeah, this is all very interesting stuff, um, and it, I think it plays into a lot of the sympathies of some of the people that listen to this podcast and just people in the organic and uh, sustainable agricultural movement in general. Um, let me ask you about the use of pesticides uh how are we wait let me take a step back here first and ask you if we're seeing this in colonies of migratory bees in that sense i mean beekeepers that are bringing their bees uh, from one place to another as well as beekeepers that just keep their bees in one place and maybe if you could break down for us what percentage of bees are non-migratory and what percentage of bees are migratory those that are being managed by beekeepers. Yeah, the majority of colonies in this country, the large largest number, are owned by migratory beekeepers. Uh, I think the number is 2.4 million colonies right now in the United States, and about a third to a half of those bees actually are moved, for instance, to California for almond pollination. So, so the largest. I mean, we have more beekeepers. Uh, far more beekeepers who are not migratory, but the largest number of colonies, which are, you know, one beekeeper may own you know, three to five to 10,000 colonies. So the largest number of colonies is owned by commercial migratory uh, beekeepers. Um, and And in general, I would say that those commercial migratory beekeepers are the ones who are suffering the most from colony collapse disorder and um, maybe even from declining health, although I would say across the board, honeybees in this country and beekeepers have seen, no matter what they're, whether they're, you know, small beekeepers, medium-sized beekeepers, or large beekeepers, they have um, all experienced the decline in health of their bees. We've lost so many beekeepers. In Pennsylvania, in the 1980s, we had 80,000 colonies of bees in Pennsylvania, and now we're down to around um, around um, 30, 30, between 30 and 35,000 colonies of bees. So that's just one example of how we've seen a loss of beekeepers as well as, as, as honeybees. Um, the pesticide issue is one that does seem to be um, – Across the board, our bees seem to be exposed to agricultural chemicals as well as chemicals that the beekeepers themselves are putting in the hive for the control of varroa and tracheal mites. Um, We have been quite surprised, and I have to say that we have looked mainly in 
the CCD colonies and in large beekeepers who have lost large numbers of, of bees or who are having problems. We have that's mainly where we've looked for these pesticides, but we have looked in small beekeepers as well, and we have been quite surprised at the level of pesticide we found in wax, pollen, and in the bees themselves. And we are uh, quite concerned about the variety as well as the levels of pesticides. It seems like this is going to be something that's very difficult to solve, and we might want to talk about that later on in the show. Um, but from what you've seen, and you've obviously been working with bees for many, many years, um, how dangerous do you believe that this uh, colony collapse disorder is to the honeybee's survival as a species? I think the honeybees as a species are going to survive. I'm not too, I mean, I am concerned. I think we are going to see it get worse before it gets better. Um, but the thing that I'm really concerned about is the loss of beekeepers. Um, these large commercial beekeepers, of which there are not very many, and they travel all over the country with their bees and pollinate the crops that need to be pollinated by honeybees, they um, cannot withstand this kind of, of um, economic loss and physical exertion, physical and mental um, exertion that they have experienced in the last uh, year and a half, two years at most. They are really, really struggling financially as well as uh, emotionally and, and, and physically exhausted because they are doing everything in their power to try to get these bees to recover, to get the bees, the, their numbers up, to protect their bees by feeding them pollen substitute, by feeding them um, nectar substitutes, by splitting their colonies and feeding them in order to provide the pollination um, need, the, you know, fulfill their pollination contracts on different crops. So it's been very, very, very tough on the beekeepers. And I've had many of them say that they are, they cannot sustain another year like this. They, they can't do it. And so we're very concerned uh, as a group, as you know, the, the, in the research community, we're very concerned about the welfare of the beekeepers and whether or not they're going to be able to stay in business. And it seems like this just hit us like a sledgehammer, you know, it was just, you know, one day everything was okay, and then, you know, all over the news it was this colony collapse disorder that just appeared. And I guess this, this year we're seeing it as bad as we did last year or worse? That's correct. I would say slightly worse. Um, I think the average uh, loss was like 31%. We lost about 30, about a third of the bees um, last year. This year, it's about 38%, I believe, was the figure. 36 or 38% of the of the colonies this year were lost. Thankfully, our beekeepers are pretty good at making up their losses. They can make divisions. They can drive the bees. They can feed them. They can increase their numbers. But it's an additional stress on the bees as well as the beekeepers. And again, you know, how long can they keep this up is, is a big question. What is it that makes you optimistic about the survival of the of the honeybee as a species? They're they're very. I mean, what we see in terms of the amount of pesticide in these colonies, it makes us wonder how they're alive at all. <laughs> and so we do think that they do have re, they have mechanisms. They have individual mechanisms as well as colony level mechanisms that allow them to overcome things that we throw at them. And um, I really do think that that um, they are capable of, of a lot. And I think we have more and more beekeepers who are reporting keeping their bees without pesticides. They, a lot of beekeepers recognize, particularly our middle-level beekeepers. You know, the big 
commercial beekeepers financially are so tied to having lots of bees and having being able to provide bees at a certain period of time, they have got to keep these large numbers of bees up and going. And so they resort to using uh, uh, pesticides to control their mite populations, their parasitic mite populations, which are very damaging to the honeybees. The smallest beekeepers, the you know, have a couple of beehives in their backyard, they really can't, um, they really can't, um, uh, you know, they lose their hives and they kind of give up. They just kind of give up in terms of, of uh, keeping bees. That's why we've lost so many beekeepers. But the 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 the, the sideline beekeepers, the beekeepers who are who are keeping maybe a couple hundred to uh, you know maybe fifty to a couple hundred colonies, they are making I think great progress in in giving up chemicals. They lose large numbers of bees, but they make increases from the bees that they do have. And they have a lot of them, a number of them, have been successful at keeping their bees for a number of years alive and healthy without the use of pesticides. Um, they've also tried to keep protect their bees. They don't, might, they don't take them around to agricultural crops. They are careful about where they put them. Um, they, they have uh, the capability of, of really, I think, um, monitoring and, and keeping the bees uh, alive and, and developing uh, bees that are resistant to mites without and, and without the use of, of of pesticides. So I think there there I see that and that gives me great hope that I hear more and more stories about beekeepers who are able to sustain their bees without the use of, of pesticides for controlling the parasitic mites in the hives. And I think that's very key to this whole problem. How dangerous do you believe that this colony collapse disorder phenomenon is to our civilization? Well, again, you know, because I think the bees will survive, I think that uh, it, I don't know that it's, 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 I mean, I don't, I think it's maybe dangerous or maybe very telling <laughs> in terms of the way that we conduct uh, agriculture in this country, the way that we have chosen to produce our, our food in this country, meaning large monocultures, um, that are dependent on bees to be brought in at certain times of the year and then taken out because pesticides are he so heavily heavily used in, in, in agriculture today. So I think the bees are, are, are going to survive. I think they're telling us something, and I think we need to listen to um, this story and think long and hard about the way we produce, mass-produce food in this country. So, uh, so spell it out for us. I mean, more explicitly, what what are they telling us? Um, not just about how we're producing food, but what are they telling us about how we should be producing food? Well, um, you know, I think there's it's there's a there's a lot that goes into the story, of course. But um, the fact that we are putting so much stress on our land, on our farmers, our, including our beekeepers, on our um, organisms that we're depending on for pollination, like not only honeybees, but even native bees, the way that we have chosen to, to again, conduct agriculture by, by large monocultures, a few people in a few places producing tons and tons and tons of, of food, most of the food for the, the country, is, is, is probably not the most sustainable way of going about producing food. And there are more 
more sustainable models and um, we see more and more um, smaller agriculture, more local agriculture, uh, more diverse agriculture um, and it may not be possible for our entire agricultural system to move in that direction but certainly um, it would seem that a movement in that direction um, or movement toward more sustainable agriculture means less pesticides, more diverse agriculture, less movement of food from over long distances, less use of, of fossil fuels in terms of fertilizers and uh, and the use of, you know, fossil fuel for, for, for working the fields and so forth. And as well, perhaps less movement of bees as we can find right. ways to actually incorporate exactly. bees into the, into the agroecosystem. Exactly, it, exactly. Are the bees going to force our hand on this? I mean, is there any hope that there's going to actually be some concrete policy or um, even social movement around this? Um, you know, I, 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 I think that the interestingly enough, this situation with the bees has been so the public and the media has been so interested in this story that I think it does have the potential to move us in a more sustainable direction, to say something very important to us about um, the way, you know, that the direction we're going may not be the one we need to go in. I think the bees can be a real force in terms of, of, of changing that direction. And um, I think the more, the more science-based data that we gather to support that, the better off we're going to be. And so there is a need to to um, continue with the the research to develop the to gather the evidence to support the story that the bees are in trouble for a number of reasons. You know, this whole issue of IAPV potentially one of the ways that it was brought here was through the importation of, of bees from another place, from Australia. And so that whole scenario of bringing um, another animal from another place, another insect from another place to shore up the pollination needs, instead of trying to understand what was happening in our own situation and, 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 and secure the beekeeping industry in this country, uh, we've resorted to bringing bees from another place, which may have created this very serious introduction of another virus that is partly responsible for the decline of bees. That is another example of, you know, the way that we we do things that, again, are not pos probably sustainable. And so I do think that the bees, in many, many ways, are examples of, of um, what might be going wrong, particularly in the way that we're we're producing food in this country, and again, the, the 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 need to think about alternative strategies that are more sustainable in the long term. And I wonder to what extent people are going to get this information from, uh, you know, I hate to use the word because it's so overused, but from mainstream sources. And I say that because I, I've yet to hear uh, a concise and very eloquent breakdown of this problem as you've just given it to us. Um, oh, well, you, you know, well, thank you for that. <laughs> well, you, well, it's true. I mean, you hear, and I, and I think this is part of it is because maybe a lot of people and, and interests don't want to admit uh, what the nature of this problem is. And I say that because, you know, I've heard of this Israeli acute paralysis virus, and I think that maybe the, the tendency is to say, oh, that's the problem. You know, science will save us. We'll just come up with a medicine for it. And we'll just continue with business as usual. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I think that is the other side of the coin. That is the other possibility is that people always want an easy fix. They always want an easy answer. And I, I think that's what everybody's looking for is a, an easy answer to this problem. You know? But this is one crisis in a, in a, for the bees in a line of many, I must say. And I think in, in terms of the environment as a whole, it's just one crisis. And this idea of trying to patch up these crises and not look at the the problem at, as a whole. You know, what are we doing, and why are we doing it, and what are the long term impacts, and you know, what what do we what do we need to do differently here? It, they're tough, tough, tough questions, and people, you know, it requires a tremendous amount of um, of um, I think effort on the part of the public and on part of the scientific community and on the part of the po- politicians to um, to get change in you know moving in the right direction and and that's a tough tough and i don't know that we we as a um i'm worried that we as a society don't have uh, what it takes to make that kind of change i really am concerned about that well i think the fact that uh people like yourself are out there working hard on this and uh breaking down the the actual nature of the problem you know and that other people are having the opportunity to listen to this and get a sense of what what's really going on uh, that that's cause for hope that's cause for hope for me anyway so let's um let's hope that we can keep moving forward with this absolutely yes and that's what i think each of us as individuals have to do is is keep doing our little piece our little part and and um and hopefully the the ship moves in the right direction slowly but surely hopefully in the right direction well i would hope that we could uh, get you back on this show maybe about a year from now so that we could get an update on what's going on with this um and you know hopefully there'll be some changes in the right direction in the very near future. Great. I'd be happy to do that. That is all we have for you this week on the Agro Innovations Podcast. This was a very fascinating discussion. I hope to touch on it again in the near future at the very end of my interview with uh, Marianne Frazier. I did ask her to send me some contact information for some of the mid-sized beekeepers that she talks about in the show. Uh, It seems like these folks are doing a pretty good job of figuring out how to solve this problem. So it would be really interesting to talk to some of them to see what they're observing in the field and see what practices specifically are giving them really good results. Upcoming, we have a uh, podcast in Spanish on ferro cement. So those of you who enjoy listening to our uh, Spanish podcasts are, of course, as always, welcome and invited to, to have a listen to that. Should have that up in about a week's time probably maybe even a little bit less. We do want to hear from you. You can get in touch with us at podcast at agroinnovations.com. You can also visit our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, where we have an archive of all the shows we've done, both in Spanish and English. And we have a contact form on our website, so you can send us emails or leave comments uh, on specific shows if you choose to. We would appreciate that as well. It's always great to hear from people that listen to the show and enjoy it. That does it for today's show. This is the AgroInnovations.com podcast. I'm Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. <laughs>